0: They can't hear you. They can't talk back.
1: Well, How do you know they're not talking back?
0: Well, maybe they are. I don't Because I, I don't care if
1: they are or not. I care, guys. I right. care.
0: Maybe that's why the last podcast has had a few more listeners. Maybe. Yeah. It's like the feld bump.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Long may it last. <laughs> Those 20 extra people that are listening to the podcast.
1: Yes. Thanks, guys.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's start off by... Well, actually, first of all, Happy Thanksgiving, I guess.
1: Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Do you know what I did today that was traditional? No. That in my family. You made a
0: pumpkin pie?
1: No, I did not. I listened to Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie. Okay. uh, Which is like a 20 minute 1960s folk song. Yeah. um, About fly tipping, essentially. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Well, it starts with fly tipping and then ends up being this sort of uh, rambling, crazy multicolored story about an adventure that ends with not having to go fight in Vietnam. That but, sounds good. Yeah, but it happens in Thanksgiving. So yeah. it's traditional to to listen to it on Thanksgiving. Right.
0: So not only have you got the wrong Thanksgiving, you dumb American <laughs> But you got the you got the wrong Guthrie as well.
1: Look, he was Woody Guthrie's son.
2: Oh was Otto he? Guthrie. yeah. Oh, yeah, was he? Okay. yeah. Okay. so it's all in the family. I'm sure
1: that's fine. Plus we invented Thanksgiving. Yeah, I know. You're just copying us. That's, well, so that's who true. has the right one, huh?
0: Well, you could use that same logic with the British people always say.
1: How we invented
0: the language, so how can you speak it any differently than we do?
1: And we improved upon it.
0: Yeah, see, that's what I say about Thanksgiving. <laughs> Here we go.
1: So tell me about tell me about <laughs> Canadian Thanksgiving traditions. What have you got? Come oh, on. just
0: like maple syrup and. Other Canadian stuff. It's but exactly Michael the same. Serp is just no, it's Canadian. All it's the totally, time. It's total bullshit. It's, it's exactly the same as American Thanksgiving. A- identical. Only but little, when a is little it? bit. O- it's October, randomly. Oh. I think it's quite arbitrary as well. I think some prime minister. Do we want to talk about this? But yeah, okay, I guess so. <laughs> some prime minister just basically wanted to make a name for himself and just went, Thanksgiving's on this day now. And that's what happened.
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: just to be different from. Americans, which is like our whole MO.
1: Good luck with that. Yeah.
0: Well, especially now, because your country (laughs) is in free fall, but you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the UNESCO City of Literature thing, please. Yes. You, for the listeners who don't know, you had a lot to do with getting this UNESCO thing, getting Manchester identified, is that the right word? Designated. Designated as UNESCO City of Literature. Which at first I thought was really cool. But then I found out there's other UK cities I've already got it.
1: Yes. Okay. We're not the first. Oh,
0: okay. Yep. So what does it mean?
1: Uh, well, essentially, it's part of... It means that we're now part of UNESCO's uh, Creative Cities Network, mm-hmm. which is... There are c- cities of film. Like, Bristol was just named a city of film, mm-hmm. which totally shocked me. Everyone, every British person I talked to is like, oh, yeah... And I was like, Bristol film, I'm not... I guess that Ardman is there. The, you know, I don't the, know what that is. Well, they made Danger Mouse, you know, the animation. Okay, story. right. Anyway. <laughs> is that enough? I don't think so, right?
0: It should be the city of, like, uh, 90s electro... Whatever that stuff's called, the... Uh, Unfinished Symphony. Oh. oh,
1: Massive Attack. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, from yeah. Bristol, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, all those guys. And uh, yeah. Fatboy
0: Slim and all that. Yep. They could be the city of whatever that genre of music is. Yeah,
1: I think... So anyway, let's just... Let's get out of Bristol. Yeah. We're spending too long in Bristol. Um, so yeah, we're now part of this network and the other UK cities of literature, the first one was Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also... Norwich. Um, Norwich and Nottingham. Mm. And so we're the fourth.
0: Nottingham as well. Nottingham
1: got it for Manchester. Yep. You betcha. That must
0: have been John McGregor weaving his magic.
1: uh, So really what this means is, the first thing most people ask is, so do we get a lot of money? And the answer is definitely not. There's no money with it. It is is just a title. It's a designation. Sure. But in order to get this designation, uh, a consortium of stakeholders, including Manchester University, Mm -hmm. MMU, the Literature Festival, the Council... Um, a bunch of different uh, sort of venues the libraries got together and said you know okay we're all gonna work on this bid Um, so that's what my that's where I came in because I was one of uh, two consultants with Martin Kratz who did the consultancy and research and kind of ran the whole uh, structure of that supporting the bid so um, really the whole thing was led by a guy called Jerome Mm DeGroote who is a perfect name uh, lecture at uh manchester uni so essentially we put in for this because literature we know manchester has a wonderful literature scene Mm -hmm. it's got a lot of incredible writers here some fine writing schools and a great tradition of kind of spoken word um dissent you know kind of debate so it seemed natural to us that we should go for this Mm -hmm. because as someone who's involved in literature and writing here, it often seems that although there's loads going on, and we all know it, not many people outside of Manchester, maybe not as many of them as we'd like, identify Mm -hmm. the city with literature and writing. Sure. And certainly a lot of people who live here seem (laughs) kind of none the wiser about what's going (laughs) on.
0: This big literature festival, really, I suppose is the biggest.
1: Yeah, the literature festival is the biggest manifestation of it. You know, the great you know live literature scene mm-hmm. we have here so anthony burgess, yeah. burgess? anthony burgess <laughs> yes elizabeth gaskell all of that yeah so and you know really, so we don't get any money what we, do we don't get? get any money but we do get a kind of structure and apparatus that will promote literature and writing in okay. manchester so it will have an office it will have people working for it mm-hmm. it will create make it easier for people to find out about what's going on cuz right okay. now it's there's no way to Disprite. find out. Um, and it will apply for funding okay. to support a kind of bunch of different development programs possibly mm-hmm. for people in working in literature to okay. just support the industry. Um, you know, so that's Yeah. Essentially it
0: Okay, I still don't get it, but that's all right.
1: It's okay. It's, if there's no it's money, how do these people
0: get... It doesn't matter. Okay, Well,
1: so. they, they're raising money right okay. now. The council is going to contribute some money, gotcha. it looks like. Okay. Uh, although I don't know necessarily, you know, the details, because I'm not really actively involved in it anymore. But I know they've applied for Arts Council funding. Okay. Um, and they can sort of partner with other cities in this network of cities all okay. over the world to do things.
0: So basically, it's still very, obviously, early stages. Oh, so. yeah. You know, if you're a writer that needs money, this is
1: not it yet. It's not it yet, and it's <laughs> probably ever. not ever it yeah, okay. but it might it might support eventually introduce a number of programs and projects that could support you okay. and help you help you promote your work and help you develop your writing and that kind of stuff. Okay. And and the idea too is also to get more regular people who aren't writing writing uh, and reading and talking about literature because you know, we all know that that's how you create empathy, you mm-hmm. know, in communities, and that's sure. how you strengthen a city is by getting people to learn about people whose lives are different from theirs. Yeah. You know. Also,
0: it teaches people how to take a kicking and not. <laughs> if you're going to write, try to write something and realize very quickly that why am I bringing such a downer on it all of a sudden? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Maybe I was it's I was in a really happy place. Yeah. And, sorry. And you just
1: you just brought me right back down to earth.
0: There. Yeah. I'm hungover. Are you? Yeah. And they they say that it makes you... It's a very common knowledge inside the BBC that being hungover makes you sound better on the radio. Really? Apparently.
1: Wow. I didn't do
0: that on purpose. I was in London at an event.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if
0: I want to talk about it on the podcast, though. Then don't. Okay.
1: Let's just leave an air of mystery hanging over that Okay, (laughs) yeah. An
0: event? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I also here well I say here I saw on is it on your Twitter or something that you're doing the real stories' something on the BBC radio for
1: yeah well the the real story at li- the literature festival yeah. we did an event with Nathan at Dead yeah. Ink, know your place uh, know your place and uh, we had May Bosworth who is a radio producer recording some of that event okay because she was doing a documentary about called where are all the working class writers? Mm-hmm for Radio 4 which aired today yeah. and you can hear it on the iPlayer but it's, it includes uh, Kit DeWall is kind of like the main focus of it because yeah. that's her big issue yeah. as you know as
0: I know um, but, and the listeners should as well
1: but I think Nathan's on it and um, uh, Gina Moore Barrett who read on the, at, at our event uh, and some other people Andrew Andrew McMillan so yeah it's really uh, it's, it's a cool thing to listen to yeah. okay
0: yeah working class writers I don't know, I, I was gonna try to play off that, but I've talked about that so much. On yeah, no, podcast. let's not
1: talk about that anymore.
0: Okay, um, uh, what else should we talk about? I've got other stuff here, but I don't know if I wanna get into it just yet.
1: Okay, well, we can talk about the event that The Real story is doing Okay. In on December 20th. Oh November,
0: yeah, your yeah. Christmas event. Our Christmas event. With bad language.
1: With bad language and first draft.
0: And first draft, oh yeah, yeah. I forgot, first draft. I, I can't say that, I was just gonna say it came out of retirement, but that's not right.
1: No, they never retired. Yes,
0: okay, so first yeah. draft. Bad language. And real the real story. story. Doing a Christmassy event.
1: Yep. There will be carol singing.
0: Oh, I, I'm not going.
1: Oh. Oh. Have you never been to this before? We've done it. I've, I. I went
0: to. Uh, for the first draft one at the, what's that posh school called? Chedmonds.
1: Chedmonds. Yeah. Well, that was Halloween.
0: No? Oh, that was Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. No. Wrong holiday. Yeah. Sorry. They all mix together this time of year.
1: Okay. I'm. I really, really want you to come to this I one. do not. And I really, really want to see you singing some carols. Do you know what? I right? just
0: remembered. We've had this discussion before where you tried to get me to sing carols. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. And then I just did.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I'll, say, I'll do the That's same. That's not year. happening this I'll do the same, same
0: again. yeah am yeah. oh, def- I'm, I'm definitely there. You know what?
1: You know why you have to be there? Why? Because I am making that the official end of all things Christmas party <laughs> and you have to come now no I don't you totally do
0: no I can be um, there's mysterious. gonna be
1: problems in our workplace if you're not there dude. like the dynamics are we gonna don't be have really any, problematic we don't
0: have an HR group yet how do you know an HR team bloody hell this thing's growing up beyond my grasp um yes we don't have an HR so what, what are you gonna do sue me
1: I think I think I'm gonna demote you actually <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I
0: can't be any lower than I already am anyway oh, that was fun <laughs> I um, I was gonna do this thing just because I thought it was funny uh, have you seen the Nicola Barker interview on the new statesman no website have you heard about it no hi Rob here <laughs> Sorry to interrupt this uh, amazing discussion Kate and I are having. But uh, I have to tell you that the interview we're talking about is actually not in the New Statesman. It's in the Times Literary Supplement. That's why later on in this podcast, when I try to find it, I can't. Uh, So anytime you hear New Statesman, just pretend that... It's us saying the Times Literary Supplement. I might even swap the words over so it actually sounds like we're saying the Times Literary Supplement. Yes, this is very embarrassing. Sorry, New Statesman.
1: Have you ever read
0: the Times Literary Supplement?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think I've read some pieces from the New
0: The Times Literary
1: Supplement? But I've never had a copy of it in my hand now.
0: I don't even, do they have a copy? Is it...
1: Yeah, it's a paper magazine. Oh,
0: is it? Right. I've seen okay.
1: it, but I, it's not something that I would ever read. I don't right. know why.
0: I don't know why either. I'm assuming it must be right wing.
1: No, I don't think it is. All
0: oh, right. Well, why don't we read it then?
1: Because uh, <laughs> I, I just read The New Yorker, and that's all I have time oh, for. Oh,
0: Christ, of course you do. Um, anyway, so it, they did this interview with Nicola Barr, and I'm interested in because that's what I'm reading at the moment, this fucking monstrous book that oh, yeah. you guys how recommended. Oh, yeah, how are you getting on with oh, my, my, I, it's, it's fine. It's one of those books where I feel like I'm supposed to read it rather than I want to.
1: Oh, well, and it's 800 pages long, so. Yeah,
0: and i was, it was going to be, I thought, well, it's fine. getting close to Christmas, so this can be my Christmas book, I guess. Wow. Anyway, what are you doing?
1: I'm sorry, I'm looking for my phone. Okay, sorry, is this going to create problems?
0: Yeah, well, we'll just, I'll have to edit it out.
1: Oh, okay. Sorry, I'll just. You
0: turned away from the microphone and you're. Well, I was
1: realizing that I wanted to tell you about the book I was reading, which I'm really liking, but you forgot the title because you're name old. Name of it. Yeah. I think it's called Border. Okay. By a woman called Ka- Kapka Kasaboba. Kafka. Kapka, <laughs> and this was a recommendation from Rod Glass, who's a writer. Okay. I went, he teaches at Edge Hill. Uh, he, when I went up there, he thrust it into my hands mm-hmm. really excitedly and said, "You're gonna love this book. It's okay. written by a poet." Uh, Well, of course,
0: that's why you like it then.
1: No, but she's an incredible writer, but she's Bulgarian, and so she went back to Bulgaria. She lives in Scotland. She went back to Bulgaria and uh, wrote about the kind of border, this sort of, this forest area that's the border between Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey, Okay. right around there, um, which is this incredibly freaky place.
0: Well, I imagine. Um, Is Is that Transylvania?
1: Ish? No, I don't think it's Transylvania. That's it Romania.
0: See, yeah. my, I, I'm embarrassing myself with my European geography. It's Bulgaria might as well be on the moon. I haven't a clue yeah, where it yeah, is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I hear that, but it's it's Dimitar Berbatov
0: is the only thing I know about Bulgarian, and now I'm, I'm suddenly not sure he's Bulgarian either.
1: I don't even know who he's he is. He's a
0: footballer that played for Manchester United and talked uh, score. Yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, anyway, it's an incredible book. I've already okay. decided I'm buying it for my dad. So
0: right. Yep. So, you and your dad have this kind of cross ocean media exchange. Well, so he bought you that record, your Thanksgiving record, now you're buying him.
1: Well, yeah, he, he's my dad. Yeah. So, we like to buy things for each other. It's
0: just know. so hard to do when they're that far away.
1: Well, he gave me the Arla Guthrie record when I was in America, when I was right. visiting him. He, he's a record collector, so he gave, uh, he let me pick, like, five That so, records.
0: that just explains so much. I can't, <laughs> I can't even tell you. He has his own Everything just falls into place now. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of those.
1: He is one of those guys. Do mm. yeah. you know, I
0: had a, <clears throat> I had a, that's kind of how my middle age, midlife crisis is going. I had that moment where I was like, ooh, yeah, a record player.
1: I got a record player. Yeah, but, what's wrong with that? But then I thought,
0: oh, yeah, but then I got to listen to a record all the way through.
1: Well, but that's a great experience. Yeah, there's so much shit
0: on most records. There's only one or two good songs on every one. You just,
1: you I, can't. I would argue that you're listening to the wrong w- records in the yeah. wrong way, my <laughs> friend. So don't get me started.
0: Well, they, you know. they. Yeah, and can you even get records... Well, I don't know. It just seems like a a faff.
1: It is a little bit of a faff. Yep, you've got to get the record player out, cue it up, and take the record out of the sleeve, where you could just click some things on your touchpad, you know? But the sound quality is really good, and there's something cool about, like, making the commitment to, yep, I'm just going to sit here and listen to this record, listen to this album, and, like, engage with it more deeply. It's a better experience, you know? I think I just like to skip to the ones I like. You are truly a child of this age. Yeah, I uh, yeah, am.
0: I'm a closet millennial. You totally are. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I couldn't be less. Uh, I am a luddite of the highest order. So this, so it should appeal to me. And fr- well, I guess one of the biggest reasons is my wife won't let me buy one. How come? Because we have no place to put it. Oh, they?
1: fair dues. Yeah, I mean, my dad. You can imagine how psyched his wife is, about the 4,000 LPs he has in the basement. And
0: my wife's from Manchester, so she knows what record collectors are like, because it's quite a big deal in this city. Crate diggers. Yeah. Right, anyways, I was talking about Nicola Barker because of this interview. She basically answered these questions. She was really standoffish about it, and she was a bit arsy, to say the least. And when you read the questions, these questions, these are stock questions. Uh The Times Literary Supplement asks all their writers. I hate,
1: can I just tell you, yeah. I hate it when newspapers do that, yeah, So in do magazines. I. I hate it. Okay, so we're on the same it page. from crazy. You. This is
0: funny. We we actually agree on something. But anyway, so I thought it'd be hilarious if I made you answer these questions.
1: Okay, great. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm so glad And then I we could say. This, and then we Ra? can say to,
0: uh, we can uh, justify Nicola's rage. Okay. Either that or you might get into these, you might accidentally get into these questions. And I then we we'll, think so. It'll make Nicola look I, bad.
1: Oh, God. I hope they're not like the Guardians. Those are horrible.
0: What, what's a Guardian one? Give me
1: oh, a point. The Guardian. Yeah, d- Okay, not it. Is it
0: started. Is there, a, <laughs> is there any book written by someone else that you wish you'd written? <sighs> what a fucking shit question. It's yeah. the worst question I've ever read, I think. And that's like the starter. Like every book? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just the dumbest question in the okay, world. Okay, right. This one is... He, wow, this one's not great either. What will your field... Look like twenty-five years from now.
1: I think it'll have a lot of grass that's about this high. Exactly.
0: That's, that's the only way you can answer that question. I'm thinking of putting in some tulips.
1: Lots of goldenrod. I yeah. really like goldenrod. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cattails, bulrushes. Uh, which of your contemporaries will be read one hundred years from now?
1: Um, my contemporaries. Yeah,
0: I guess it doesn't really affect no. us, does it?
1: No. None Being of slumbers. them. None of them. We're yeah. journalists, my contemporaries. Oh, dear. What we write is out of date, like, the next day. Yeah. So, you know.
0: Uh, what author or book do you think is most underrated and why?
1: Uh, not c- Nicola Barker, No, sure.
0: I was going to say, this could be our in to talk about our guest, Joanna Cavena.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, she is... Unfairly underrated. I don't yeah. understand. I mean, I don't think she's underrated. She's won the Orange Prize. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, she, but she's not
0: really well known. She's strangely. not. I guess.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say underrated, but underknown. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I the two books that I've read of hers, the Field Guide to Reality, her latest one, and Come to the Edge. They couldn't be two more different books. Yep. I, you can't believe it's the same writer that's done both, and they're both great. You like. Field Guide to Reality.
1: I love Field Guide to Reality. I was just. I it again. I love
0: Come to the Edge.
1: Yeah. Well, I haven't read Come to the Edge, but. Uh, you won't believe you, you yeah. c- not
0: You can't believe that it's the same, writer. Can I think you we talked... No. Because you can't.
1: the thing is that I can, you know, like I read Field Guide to Reality, and I've read her essays, mm-hmm. um, and heard her perform other stuff, and I can see, even though it's incredibly diverse, what mm-hmm. she writes about across different forms, yeah, um, and topics, you know what is consistent there is someone who is an incredibly, incredibly talented and skilled writer. Yeah, you know? and
0: really annoyingly smart as well. Yes,
1: yeah, and a great intellect. Yeah, you know? I
0: had, uh, you, you've not heard the, the uh, interview yet. No. It's, it's, I hate talking to smart people because I'm treading water and trying to say things. And it's good because I make a fool of myself slightly, but I think it encourages the guest to relax when they realize they can say whatever they want, hopefully.
1: And to be honest with you, most of the people listening to this podcast, <laughs> like, would possibly be intimidated to discuss some of the things that Joanna knows about, yeah. you know, philosophy and, you I know. know, so I actually, it's, it's probably good that you, yeah. you Joe know, just Average. let fly yeah. with your ignorance. <laughs> um, well,
0: well, thanks for that. <laughs> hey, good job, Rob. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, listen to that interview. Um, what, okay... Oh boy! See and like, how could you even answer this question? What author or book do you think is most overrated, and why?
1: Wow! Like that's just hello. I know. Itchy. Exactly, isn't it? Yeah. Ooh. Um, I I can't think of anyone that I like that I I dislike that much. Yeah, I can. Their writing. Yeah, I can. Will Self?
0: No, I like Will Self's writing. Okay. I don't like his novels, but I love his journalism.
1: Okay, I'm trying to think. I don't like
0: him much. Well, that's not that's not true either. I actually really quite like him. I couldn't you couldn't be friends with the guy, but you know,
1: he's actually incredibly personable.
0: Is he? Yeah. You've actually met him. Yeah. I don't know. I can't get past the the persona he puts on.
1: Yeah. Well, Why, let's not talk about anyway, self again. Anyway, yeah. Right. I, these are, yeah, are so there it's not any questions self. that aren't about books cuz yeah. Yeah, you, okay.
0: yeah, yeah they, they get worse, believe me. Okay. Yeah, so anyway, I, I do have one for this one. Go on. Tolkien.
1: Uh. Oh. Them's fighting words, Rob. Yep. All right. I said it. I'm sorry.
0: Lord of the Rings. I
1: can't be in your podcast anymore. I know. Anymore. Uh, I'm the only person on earth
0: that didn't like it. Yeah. I'm surprised you like Lord of the Rings.
1: Come on, man.
0: Oh, it's fuck. Tolkien.
1: Yeah, it's like, hobbits.
0: Walk, yeah. walk, 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 walk. Ah, hide. For for 800 million fucking pages.
1: Dude, this it is the seminal work of fantasy literature. Yeah, it's like, horrible. Oh, I know it's you rubbish. have this thing about elves and hobbits and yeah, fairies and it. shit. Okay. No. No,
0: I can't deal with that. And it, and you know why I can't deal with it? Because I hate those books so much. I tried reading them as a child, and I got about halfway through Twin Towers, Two Towers, and just went. When is something going to happen?
1: Well, th- your first mistake was that that's like the second book in the trilogy. So yeah, if you started. No, no, that... no, no. no. I've,
0: I've read the first one. Okay, if halfway through the second <laughs> I one. Like, uh,
1: <laughs> not no that wonder,
0: stupid. Rob. <laughs> oh wait, that's the problem. <laughs> Try I'm again. Dumb. I am dumb, but I'm not that dumb. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah, okay. Anyway. <laughs> Moving on. If oh, this is, oh, these questions just get worse. They, they're infuriatingly bad. Okay. If you could be a writer in any time and place, when and where would it be?
1: I would be the writer who is writing these questions. <laughs> and kill myself? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I would like just decide I wasn't up to the task and give it to someone else.
0: Yeah, I would be uh, a writer. It's, uh, you can't even answer that question. No. I was trying to think of something Next funny, is- but it's impossible. This one actually is okay. If you can make a change to anything you've written over the years, what would it be? No, it's still rubbish. Oh, no,
1: she had these, these questions. I know.
0: She you know what? She had some funny answers to a few of these. Yeah. How anybody can come up with anything, but just wait. Um. Okay. I'll skip the next couple. <laughs> this one's this one starts. Let's play humiliation. Oh,
1: see David no.
0: See David Lodge's changing places. Like as if everyone should know what that is.
1: Oh. David Lodge. God. Have you read Art of okay, the Novel? Okay, now I'm actually getting angry. I know.
0: I know. <laughs> have you read Art of the Novel? No. Okay, anyway, it doesn't matter. What's the most famous book you haven't read? It's just dumb. I think we should stop because I,
1: I I'm sorry, we need to stop because I'm getting like I'm actually getting Violent.
0: Here. Yeah, and then oh yeah, then it goes. Uh, quick, ca- quick questions. Camus or, Sartre, or Sartre? Sartre?
1: Sartre. Sartre. That's the wrong question.
0: Yeah, I know. Proust or Joyce? Like it's just it's the they're the worst questions I've ever seen in my life, and it's
1: like a par it's like a parody. Of it like is some kind of tw- up its own ass. I almost like,
0: wonder if it is a piss take.
1: Yeah.
0: But yeah, the New Yorker would never do that,
1: I suppose. They probably have one as well, don't they? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> You've obviously never read the New Yorker. They wouldn't touch that shit with a 10 foot pole. No way. Oh, right. It's just, it's stupid. It's a stupid thing to engage in. Yeah. I would have been so pissed off. Yeah.
0: So uh, let's see if I can find some of her answers. I'll tell you what her answers were to some of these. Um, Editing out the poem. I tell you one thing, though. The
1: Times Literary Supplement is never going to feature, end of all things. In their magazine now.
0: They never would have anyhow. No one will. Okay. Man looking things up on the internet. They
1: publish some poetry in there sometimes.
0: I'm going to to see Okay. Jeez, you know what?
1: Don't worry about it. We don't need to see what she said. We can, readers, that can be your homework. Look it up and see if she managed to say anything better than we did. And I'm sure she did.
0: I'm determined now.
1: Okay, just no. No, it's gone. The moment is passed.
0: I just—I suddenly had a sickening feeling that it actually isn't the New Statesman. Oh, really? See, there is a, Hi, Rob again. There is a reason I can't find the article. Because guess what? It's not the New Statesman. It's a Times Literary Supplement. I am never doing this podcast hungover again. If you want to see this interview uh, done by the Times Literary Supplement then it is posted on my webpage, our webpage, and on the End of All Things Twitter page. Sorry again, New Statesman. I'm sure you would not lower yourself to doing stock question and answers with your literary authors.
1: That would be embarrassing. It would be, wouldn't it?
0: I'm gonna have to, All that editing I'd have to do. <laughs> right. Listen to Joanna Cavenna now, and then when you're done... Oh god, I I can't do that.
1: Why not? And then when you're done what? Uh, Cuz
0: I have to think of something to say before I actually try to say it. <laughs> being hungover is is this, this is a stupid idea being hungover on a podcast.
1: I'm sure it's never happened before.
0: Never. I'm usually drunk.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm drunk with joy, with the joy of being on this podcast and yeah. and sharing this time with you, Rob.
0: Oh wow. Yeah,
1: that makes me that makes me so elated.
0: Holy cow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's definitely getting edited out. <laughs> so
1: I can start doing my Canadian accent if you'd
0: don't like. you don't. Just to just to
1: liven things up. Dare
0: hey. man. Oh no, I can't. I can't. I can't put up with that with them Brits, and I certainly can't put up with, with you.
1: <laughs> it's not for me. Well, yeah. I'll start doing
0: that. Hey y'all.
1: Yeah. Come oh. down to the
0: mattress store, y'all. <laughs> I'ma sell you a mattress, mattress, mattress. The mattress store.
1: Yeah, you sound so much like someone from Vermont. It's crazy. Yeah, they yeah.
0: all sound the same, bloody Americans.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's what I—that's all I heard when I drove through Idaho, on Idaho? the radio. Mattress, mattress, the mattress store, <laughs> where you get more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I believe it actually. And that No, one,
0: but it started. Hey y'all.
1: Okay. Hey y'all.
0: Mattress, mattress, the mattress store. <laughs> Let's, I get editing all that out.
1: You're not. You always say that, but you you don't because you can't be ours to go back and edit it all out. So I, it all stays in with you saying, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna edit, edit that all out. that out. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, well this time I'm definitely editing that.
1: Okay, out. we'll see Rob. We'll okay.
0: see. Okay. <laughs> you see the annoying thing is you started listening to the podcast,
1: so I can't get away with anything anymore. Nope. <laughs> I actually used this podcast when I was teaching the other day. You did as not. A, as an example, a shit podcast. That's <laughs> an example of when you should cut it. <gasps> when you yeah. shouldn't. When you should. When you should know when to cut. You know didn't when to cut at the very end. I did. Remember last because time? because
0: the the, the, bit, the end bit was yeah, too long. yeah yeah yeah. Wow, that's cold, man. I know. We're supposed to be on the same team.
1: We are on the same team, but I was I thought there was a teaching moment there.
0: You oh, know. Yeah. Yeah. Humiliation.
1: I didn't actually play it. I just told them the story. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Um, so don't worry.
0: Right. Well, you're now going to listen to Joanna Cavena. I'm not going to cut anything out of that one, just to spite Kate. And the interview, hopefully, is going to be an hour and a half long. Wow.
1: It well, if, it, if you're listening to Joanna Cavena, then it will fly by.
0: Yeah. Okay. Here's Joanna. Listen. <laughs> Such a stupid question, but I think it's only relevant in this kind of book. What, what, why? How do you even come up with something like this? Like, how does it? Like, it, is this? You just woke up one day and said, "I'm going to write a book that questions reality."
2: Well, I suppose I've always had a very—I suppose I've always had that feeling, and I—I I, I use sometimes the the. Um, Baudelaire quote because it's so good where he says il me semble que je serai bien là où je ne suis pas when I quote it I always miss out one word actually which I was going to
0: say I was going to say that
2: yes there's one word anyway but I've done it again <laughs> but anyway the, um, and that's it feels to me I'd be okay anywhere but here right and so this sense that reality is very strange and we're all kind of in it and we're yeah. sort of dropped into it uh, yeah. as children and then we're inducted into its major precepts whatever they are in whichever yeah. era And told that this is all kind of normal and we've got to live within these precepts otherwise we'll be weird or mad or other sort of things we're not meant to want to be. And and yet we're changing all the time, we're children and we're expected to act like children and then we're grown-ups and we have to act like grown-ups and we have all these other layers intrinsic. So I think the individual experience of reality is very odd and shifting and unreal. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying, the kind of history of thought about what reality is, is you have the kind of overarching philosophical discussion, what is reality, what is truth, which no one can ever really resolve. Mm-hmm. That's just millennia of arguing. Yeah. And then you have these kind of more tendentious pauses, you know, where people say, right, we've all, we all accept now that atoms are the smallest particles, Or you know, and so people pause at that moment and then they divide the atom mm-hmm. further and further and further. So you, you have these sort of layers of thought in that. And I suppose I got to this book by... Well, I had this idea because of my own slightly, um, I suppose you could say, dislocated approach to quotidian reality. I thought it would be really helpful if there was a manual for fixing existential angst. I started to think about that idea, this very helpful book that every time we had a question like, why must we live, why do we die, you know, what is reality, you would consult the manual and it would explain everything. And then I started thinking about trying to do that and who would create it. And then I realised it was so improbable that it would have to be in a parallel world. And then I realized that even in the parallel world the book would have to be lost. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got to this idea that there was this field guide to reality that a professor had ostensibly mm-hmm. tried to collate or had created, but then he died and it was lost. Yeah. And the characters are trying to find it. And in a way that was just to send them. It was a kind of I mean, it was something that to me was really, really appealing existentially, mm-hmm. but also I knew it would also send them on a quest where yeah. they would have to look at all these theories of reality and mm. these various precepts. And I wanted the narrator who's very uncertain to meet a series of very certain people okay. who have very overarching theories. Because, like anchor like, points. Well, just because I'm always so fascinated by people who are certain. You mentioned Cassandra White, mm-hmm. these people who have huge convictions, yeah. because I... In a way, don't. Just wrecking uh,
0: balls, basically. Yes, yeah. I mean,
2: I, I do have so, obviously quite a few convictions, but in terms of the overarching philosophical terrain, I'm very uncertain about yeah. what everything is. Plus, it's especially. easier to have
0: convictions now.
2: Well, there's a lot of conviction about at the moment. Mm. Yes. Too much, yes. some might suggest. Yes, yes exactly. You start mm. to think of Yeats. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, so I thought she would be sort of assailed by people with big theories of reality, theories of everything. In a way.
0: Yeah. I've read in an interview. Where you said you think everybody questions, has like that existential angst questions, you know, why am I here, basically? Do you really believe that?
2: Well, I think it's interesting that we're hugely patronized, aren't we, by lots of um, the appeals to us, I suspect, I feel, you know, that. I think, again, it's this uh, I, this thing out of interpolation, this idea that you're, you're sort of told... Are you, you sure about. you weren't a philosophy major? <laughs>
0: Come on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, well, I spent far too much time in my right. alleged degree reading. Gosh. Because I wasn't meant to read. But, you know, this idea of interpolation. So you're told you're a woman, you're like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're working class, you're like that, You know, etc. And you're given these roles and you're told to be quiet and stay in your box. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody I've ever spoken to about it and... My, you know, my parents came from very working class backgrounds. Their parents, you know, longed to do something else, to be poets. Actually, my grandfather was never allowed, you know, forced to work in a factory in Birkenhead for 45 years. You know, I think people have that sense there's something else they might have wanted to do. Or they do. I think everybody questions why am I this? Why am I told that I'm this? Mm -hmm. At that level, everybody questions these rules. Yeah, I think
0: people listening to this would be surprised to say that you've come from a working-class background because probably... I haven't. It was my parents who were Right, okay.
2: They were the kids from the working-class backgrounds who got the chance to finish school, first in their families to finish school, first to get to go to university. And they had that sense, you were talking about it, of the wastage, you know, that my father was the first in his family ever to get the chance to finish school and he got a scholarship to Cambridge, and mm-hmm. he had that sense of all the other people in his family. He'd never had the chance even to get to that exam, yeah. you know. So I think that's, you no, know, no, they did the work. They were mm. the clever, talented mm. working class kids. I just benefited from their, right. their enterprises.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think, uh,
2: you
0: know, I say I've come from a working class background. I suppose that's true by Canadian standards. Totally different from British standards, I think. My dad sold cars. And uh, my mum was, was a book. Uh, it's, it's a place called Brooks, Alberta. So is it beautiful? If you like if you like flat prairie, it is. Uh, where I live is, uh, you can see the horizon and off. It's like the Australian outback yeah. with rapeseed everywhere. Right. That's basically it. Yeah. Um, but then once you get past Calgary, it goes straight from this to the Canadian Rockies, yeah. which that part is un- un- astoundingly beautiful, really.
2: Yes. But I wonder if, because I think, I mean, I know, of course, in Canada, there are, you know, social elites and, but I wonder if Canadian yeah. society is, is less stricken by the rigidity of the English class system, where I was talking about this to someone who's arrived in Oxford to be a visiting professor. And he was saying that he always felt there's another room, there's another inner sanctum, you know, in, in British institutions. Yep. So you, you get to Another boys club. Yeah, and there's another, there's a little mm-hmm. key to the next yep. one and the next one. And yeah. I think, you know, English society and British society have been very good at creating, you know, the this, this sort of sanctor after sancta after sancta. Yeah.
0: Sanctaure. I think the biggest difference I noticed when I came over here was how comfortable people were calling themselves working class. Right. You wouldn't, I, I, Canadians just wouldn't do that. I don't know if we're, you just think that, I, I think we kind of inherit that from the Americans where there's the idea of the dream the American dream, basically, where, you know, anybody can pull themselves up and they yeah. just work hard. And I think, uh, to a certain degree, that can still be true. Yes. Uh, but I think in Britain, uh, it's a lot more difficult because of those, you know, the very stringent hierarchy that's been around for, well, since yes. yeah,
2: hundreds and of years, education really. systems, yes.
0: Yeah. And I mean, our, our education system... Well, was worse, I think, because it was really expensive. Like, I I couldn't afford to go to university. Um, We tried to, but if you don't pick the right thing when you first go in, you uh, are so far in debt that you can't start over again, really. And I think kids who come from a background... I shouldn't say... I'm talking like I'm a poor kid. It wasn't like that at all. But, you know... By Canadian standards, I say we were middle class. But we... um, If you... I think if, if you come from something, if you don't come from money, you don't go into the arts because nice. it's too expensive. You, you'd have to be a Cassandra White yeah. to have, be that determined to do it. So yeah. I kind of fudged it. I'd say, oh, well, I'll go take commerce and then you get a couple of options. And I took fine art and English and aced those. And I think just to, you know, to stay sane when I'm taking economics and maths. Yep. And this other course called policy environment. Don't even, it's not even worth going into, but and flunked flunked those because I knew from a very early age math was not for me. But because you you have the idea of the most important thing you can have is money. Yes. Correct. So why would I go to university to keep being you know to keep struggling for cash like you know my dad did?
2: Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I yes. think you can
0: see that now in Britain. You guys are. Yes. yes, Going absolutely. whole hog up into that—that I, yeah. I, that was the two things I was most impressed yeah. by England when I first moved here—and it stopped me from boring you.
2: No. But it's
0: interesting. Is um, that there were no homeless people, and education was virtually free. Mm. I've only been here for ten years, so I mean it's not like that. This is something that's happened over thirty years. It's incredible. Yeah. No. How it's, now you can't walk that's without.
2: Absolutely right. And yeah. it's a transition. It's such a stark transition, and it wasn't like the society was equal prior to that, but the, these things were in place at least. Yeah, and that's quite right. There were generations like my parents' generation where you had a genuine social shift because yeah. of free education, and you had children from non-rich backgrounds yeah. who emerged into prominent positions in education, the arts, you know, the media. Yeah, and that's going to change utterly. The door has been it closed, is. and it's really appalling. And it's you, you now. I was talking to somebody the other day about universities. Now you're going to get a situation as well of. There's already a kind of huge class apartheid. There's a geographical apartheid in the country, you know, where you have um, people in the north who are denied opportunities mm-hmm. that are present to those in the south. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very severe mm-hmm. situation, I think, to place populations in.
0: I do. I, I think so as well. I think another problem, I, I, should, I have to be careful because I work for the university, but certain, um, I've read interviews with different uh, vice chancellors at universities and not many of them want to go back to free education and i think how can you go into edu- how can you go into education and think oh because you know, they they were too worried they won't get the same amount of money that they had before yep. and now that they've you know they've recouped i I'd, I'd love to see the books to see if they're actually making more now mm. with now that the tuition fees have trebled. Yes, i don't know yes yeah.
2: it would it be very interesting mm. but yes but it, it you know clearly it creates further obstructions in the way of yeah of young people, from so in a strange way, rich uh, yeah.
0: I, I would, in a few years from now, I'd be very surprised if many people could do what your parents did.
2: Mm, yes, I would, absolutely. And when George Osborne, it was a couple of years, which was about the last thing that was enacted before he evaporated from hmm. his political career, yeah, um, was to you know, cause even people on lower than average earnings, people from families with lower than average earnings, mm-hmm. who, you know, people from, i.e. families Working that for. are struggling, mm-hmm. yes, to, to pay for basic necessities, even those people would have to take out student loans. I thought that was a really, you know, extraordinarily severe.
0: Mm-hmm. Game changer.
2: Yes, absolutely, yes.
0: Yeah. Um. <laughs> yes, well, we've,
1: we've
2: How do we get back to the we've book now? <laughs>
0: That's so funny. If you think there was an actual field guide to reality in Mm. 2017, what would be in it?
2: God, in art. I mean, yes. yes, In Donald Trump's America. Yes, I mean, that's really interesting. So I think... You see, my theory about this is the last hope at the moment is we've got this double problem now, in a way. We had... A quite necessary resistance to political authorities that was absolutely vital because they'd, for example, caused things to occur, political and economic and sort of expert authorities to occur, like the credit crunch, Mm -hmm. a massive financial crisis that was, you know, a, a sort of insufficient forecasting by supposed experts combined with evident corruption in major financial institutions, which of course went Broadly speaking, unpunished, mm-hmm. and that caused as that directly affected real people's lives and people who already weren't, you know, prosperous. There was a very, very necessary questioning of that. What's happened is that, of course, certain um, layers of authority are very clever at um, re-in, kind of re, you know, binding that back into their overarching enterprise. So then you get people like Trump following the kind of Putin, serkov model. Where you say, yeah, that's right, you know, nobody's telling you the truth, give up, you know, or nobody's telling the truth except me. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the Trump kind of model, yeah. you know, everybody else is lying to you except I'm telling it the way it is. Yeah. And, um, and that was, of course, that was what Serkov seemed to be doing in Russia with his, you know, created oppositions and, you know, fake political movements mm-hmm. where you then cause people to doubt what reality is yeah. and they become inert and confused so i think that's really i mean that's a you know further i mean it's extremely important to question all realities because you know everything should be questioned Mm -hmm. then there's that further question of if people like trump are saying yeah go ahead question everything give up Mm -hmm. then there has to be some sort of further evolution and possibly then you get into people trying to set up you know their own kind of communities or um trying to rely on your own subjective interpretation of the world and trying to find like-minded individuals. Mm-hmm. So you say, right, I'm here, this is my experience, it's real. Mm-hmm. To me, I'm going to actually live yeah. this experience and not have everything devolved into a kind of Trumpian dystopia. Yeah. So it's, I think we're in a really complicated era. And you see that craving, actually, in the Corbynistas, you know, the, the sort of Glastonbury kind of yeah. those moments where you see people want something that is genuine, sincere, Mm-hmm. isn't just being presented to them as part of some kind of package that's designed to yeah. ultimately torment them. So I, I think it's a very febrile moment. Yeah. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, you can't rely on morality even because it's you can't even bring that into the equation because that that's so easily manipulated now as well it seems. Yes, that's yeah. right. So it's not just the fact that you don't really know, you can't trust the leaders, but you don't actually know what's right and wrong. No. I, I think a lot of people, especially people in a in a society who perhaps haven't, have haven't no education or very little education or... And I think, I don't know if this might be... This is a completely anecdotal. But maybe, like, it seems to me that like social media is kind of allowing people to create their own communities, which I think they've yes. probably been missing for ages. Yeah. And now they feel like they belong to something. And that's more important than, you know making sure they're doing the right thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's all that. And then there, I mean, in terms of a field guide to reality, I suppose there are all the perennial questions that no one ever answers because you'd need to be omniscient to answer them. Mm-hmm. What is the meaning of the universe? Yep. You know, what is time? You know, where does everything originate? You know, in order to have an absolute categorical answer to those questions, yeah. you would need to transcend the boundaries of um, yeah. human yeah. existence. So those questions are endlessly interesting to debate, you know, Albeit that we will not yeah. necessarily arrive at the. Uh, Here's a question for
0: you. What do you? Which question is more important? Why are we here, or how did we get here? <laughs> where, did,
2: where did we get here from? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> did we do you think? Does it matter system?
0: why? Or you know what? Why we're here, or is there a why even?
2: That's right, and that's such an interesting question, isn't it? Because. We're asking this question in the human, we assume, the human-created system of language, Mm -hmm. um, which again, actually, we don't know the origin of, so we can't get back to the original Mm -hmm. language. That's another sort of perplexing, fascinating thing. Mm. But we're asking, and we have these, I mean, Wittgenstein, of course, writes a lot about this, but these protocols within language, these sort of expectations within language, that there will be a why, Mm -hmm. and there will be an answer to that why. Yeah. And, you know, the extent to which these are linguistic notions that bear no relation to... The everything that's around yeah. us you know, is, again, it's unknowable. Or the it's how, definitely, yeah. Yeah, there may just not be that answer. Yeah, it doesn't feel like
0: there can be a why, but it feels like we get, we're getting close to how. feels like we're getting closer and closer, but, you know, who knows? And
2: yes. does it matter? Yes, well, yes, it's fascinating, and it's really interesting. And that's another thing with this book. When I was writing the Field Guide book, I was talking to lots of physicists, and... And they all really absolutely acknowledge, you know, the fundamental element of metaphor and poetry within these concepts of the Big Bang. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that the originating metaphor is actually a really ancient one. It comes from Lemaitre, who was a a Belgian priest, in Mm -hmm. fact, who coined, well, didn't coin, but talked about in the 20s, this idea of the cosmic egg cracking Oh, right. Really? Yeah, the Big Bang metaphor. I mean, his theory then led to what we now call the Big Mm -hmm. Bang. But that didn't come from the It came from Fred Hoyle, who was actually an opponent of the Big Bang. He had his own a separate theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but he so. But the cosmic egg is this really incredibly ancient thing that you can trace back to the ancient Egyptians mm-hmm. and the ancient Greeks and the Orphic egg, and you know the kind of egg floating in the great endless ocean, and you know yeah. etc. All the egg on the on the you know the sort of mound and yeah. something and cracking. Up. So. These this strange kind of, these felicities of language are very interesting. Yeah. What comes first? It's literally that question. What comes first, the metaphor or the theory? Yeah. You know? It also
0: makes you wonder if maybe we did have the answers and they've been lost rather than yes. maybe we've never had them.
2: Exactly. Maybe the metaphor is just an expression of the absolute truth which mm. someone divined at some stage. I mean, yeah. we, we don't know.
0: Well, I mean, the fact that we, don't even, we still don't have a clue how the, pyram- the Great Pyramid was built. I mean, something as simple as that. You know, yes. it's, it, we we have no idea, and could, a lot of people think even with the technology we've got now, we could just about do it, how it was done then. So it does it, it does speak to there is there's an idea that it could be there could have been a civilization that's missing from our history books. I don't know.
2: Yes, I mean absolutely, all entirely possible that mm. we have this, and it's highly. I mean, it's you know we might as well contemplate the notion that we will discover that, or somebody you know beyond us, it will be discovered that all our ideas about the moment at which humanity emerges are, you know... Bullshit. Advanced. <laughs> every single theory, or I mean, I'm sure now there's going to be millions of exceptions, but mm-hmm. almost every scientific theory in history, it's like almost, you know, it's like species extinction, you know, scientific yeah. theories, that they don't have an eternal span, you know, mm-hmm. they tend to be adjusted or yeah. severely questioned or they rise and fall and... So yes, the ones that we hold to now mm. will be severely questioned later. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, once we once we split quarks up.
2: Yes, well, yes. Once we work out what the hell they are, and yeah. then, then split them up. Yeah,
0: <laughs> God help us. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions about the book. One of the things that I found most fascinating, other than the book itself, is the fact that a A-way, way a way way i way way I can never i way way is in the acknowledgments. Yes. What did he have to do with the book?
2: He um. Well, that's that's um, that's a very interesting question. You're the first person who's asked me that. Really? Yes. Isn't that interesting? I don't, maybe no one got as far as acknowledging. <laughs> yeah, <why. laughs> Thrown it across the room before they... yeah. So my um, my partner, who's a writer, he worked for a long time with Ira Way, and he wrote a book about um, Ira Way's period of imprisonment when okay. he was in prison for eighty-one days. Yep. Um, and. So I was fortunate enough to meet Ai Weiwei a few wow. times through um, my partner. And so I guess talking to him about art and reality, he's obviously, as you'd expect, exceptionally interesting yes. on Everything. ideas about vantage point in art and mm-hmm. antiquities. He's an expert actually on Chinese antiquities. Um, mm. And uh, so that was partly as a very inspiring person who i had the fortune to talk to a bit um and also uh, when my partner was working he was working in um, berlin a bit where i were now is having had to leave china mm-hmm. and um he was my partner actually with someone else uh, created the cover for that book okay and um and they were they were, the creation was occurring while he was at the iraway studio and he was talking a lot to about ideas. The creation of his, your
0: partner's book, not your book. My cover. Your co- the cover yes, on your book, on yes. The get to Reality. Oh, right, yes. okay.
2: So so I felt that cover wouldn't have emerged as it did. with wow. The kind of, you know, this very inspiring atmosphere in which it was being produced. Right. So that was, that was why. But uh, yeah, partly the people I thank in those acknowledgements are people who'd inspired very significant aspects of that book in oh, terms of yeah. its evolution basically it's just yeah. kind of in terms of the sort of weird thought process that these things yeah
0: go through. yeah and this one's probably weirder than
2: most it's pretty weird <laughs> yes and I was talking to a lot of really interesting people about like Roger Penrose and Julian mm-hmm. Barber and David Chalmers I mean lots of people through Hilary Lawson who's a British philosopher as well and um Mary Midgley. I mean, these you know really fascinating individuals about their various notions of the things we've been discussing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, what are you writing now?
2: I'm writing. Um, anything? If you, if you can't tell weird me, novel. are you? All right. Good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, which is set in London. I haven't set anything in London for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, my is that friend, where you live now? No. Oh no, no. you just
0: said Oxfordshire. Oxfordshire. Sorry.
2: Yeah. But I did. I spent some years living in London. Well, not really, I mean, a few years living in London. And, um, and I've set a book there in Glorious, which was my first novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like lots of writers, you know, writers leave London a lot, really, because staying in London becomes untenable. I mean, the major kind of enterprise of their days is, is trying to stay in London. But yeah. Um, so uh, I, but I felt again. As you were saying, in the last decade, London's changed so much and is, I mean, it is like a physical manifestation of this societal iniquity that we've been discussing, where you just have entire buildings in the centre standing completely empty. Yeah, it's like come to the, it's, the edge. It's yeah. unbelievable what's yeah. occurred. And, you know, this land banking thing, you know, this idea you just treat space as a commodity mm-hmm. and no one ever resides in it. And, You get these huge penthouse apartments, which actually, at the moment, I think are actively not being sold. I was reading the other day because the prices are a bit wobbly or dodgy. And so no one wants to mark a lower price than they're hoping to get for these penthouses. So there's some argument that they're sort of refusing to sell unless they can mark the first price for the block at some high level. And you just think this is so crazy. It is. absolutely, And the idea of this blank city where you go into the centre at night and unless there's some clever timer system going on in these apartment blocks, they're all just dark. Dark. You know, it's like a sort of post apocalyptic mm. city. So and again that feeling of how much more will people be asked to accept in terms of what's happening in our society?
0: Mm-hmm. So basically the book's Come to the Edge Part Two. <laughs> Come to the Edge <laughs> goes to the city. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not quite.
2: I was trying to be in this one I was trying to build a, a kind of Come to the edge, I wanted to write very directly about these things. And in this Mm -hmm. one, I'm trying to build a metaphor, in a sense. So that's the thing I'm trying to do at the moment, is to find a way.
0: Have you found your bolshie character yet?
2: That's interesting, actually. Yeah, I'm quite interested in... I really love bolshie characters, and I also love characters who almost don't realise what's happening to them for ages, and then have that moment where they... You know, flip over mm-hmm. to the other. So I, I quite like characters who are, because they're they're kind of nice, modest, kind people are trying to accept mm-hmm. totally unreasonable conditions that they're presented. So with.
0: this is the main character and come to the edge as well.
2: Well, I guess although yes, I mean exactly. Although I felt in the end, she exactly she flips. That's that's quite right. She is mm-hmm. like that for a,
0: for a very <laughs> short part of the beginning of the book. <laughs> <laughs> for at least Three pages. Yeah. <laughs> Nazi, yeah. Yeah.
2: She, yeah, she does flip, yes. Mm. Yes. But she needs someone to, to, to cause the flip, that's right. I didn't that's think right. she would have done without yep. the Catalyst.
0: Yeah, yeah. so I've, uh, So the book that you're writing now is... So you've not found your character then yet?
2: Um, I've got some characters actually and I need to... It's a bit like with The Field to Reality. I just need to slightly tweak the reality so we're mm-hmm. in a kind of parallel... Words, oh great! I just want to make it slightly off, but still London. Yes, so it would oh. be, be a bit like the parallel. Oxford, I mean, it won't be like the parallel Oxford that's mm-hmm. in a field guide, but the same idea that just you kind of just just want to be in the thing just to the side, mm-hmm. but with lots of the same conditions, but somehow rendered into mm. something a bit less, you know, so, so less kind of, real. Well, I suppose so that the. Yeah, so your characters are slightly strange to the reader. That's the idea, mm. hopefully. But God it'll probably just blow up as these things, I'm sure you know. Yeah.
0: Um, that's great. I think that was really good.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much for your questions. It was a pleasure.
0: Wow, wasn't that a great interview, Kate?
1: It, it certainly was, Rob.
0: I wonder if it was actually an hour and a half or if I actually edited it down to
1: 30 minutes because
0: I haven't done it yet.
1: I wonder if anyone's still here to hear this. Yeah,
0: probably not. Um, that is that for the November podcast. There's going to be another one in December and then some more in January. And I've just signed some new guests that I've not even told Kate Ooh. about.
1: So what do we got coming up in December, Rob? Uh,
0: phew, I, I John McGregor.
1: Oh, well, that'll be a good one.
0: John McGregor, yeah. So that's it. Bye.
1: Bye.